0: Eleanor Hansen Wise and
1: this is Oliver Wise
0: and we're from the Present Group and we sat down with Rebecca Blakely on November twelfth, twenty ten
1: to talk about this season's piece for the Present Group
0: TPG sixteen.
1: Enjoy it. Bye. Now you're singing a song
0: that I knew when I was young. We can only see ourselves. a strange kind of mirror you mentioned on your website the idea that you want to trick people into coming across artwork what appeals to you about art in unexpected places
2: um there's there's several different things i really uh enjoy that experience myself of finding art somewhere unexpected and so uh, I try to, I always just filter things through my own enjoyment so often. So I, I try to create an experience that I would want to find. And then also I, there was some just level of frustration of trying to get my show, my my work in shows and out in the world and, and running into a lot of difficulty doing so. And so kind of turning to this more subversive way of putting work out there just because that way, it could be totally self-directed, self-produced. Didn't require any kind of middleman. Uh,
1: maybe you could explain your your shop dropping work.
2: Um. So I. Uh, this is kind of one branch of a sort of two-pronged shop dropping endeavor, um, where I, you know, it, take items out of uh, a context that is not normally artistic and alter them in some way that I I hope makes them an art object and for this one I was originally putting post-it notes in library books and for another one I have been doing uh, work in a retail setting and in in either case it's somewhere where I hope that someone will recognize it as art in in some way but uh but at the same time have kind of an, an inexplicable um experience. You you
0: work under a pseudonym for yeah. your other work? Do you have you always had a pension for doing something sort of a little bit sneaky? Or I mean, how did you start doing I, I this? Think type I think I have.
2: Work? Yeah, actually. I mean, um I kind of didn't really think about it, the connections so much but I used to be into work that had a lot to do with. Well, I did. I did one piece when I was in college that was called "Documentation of Stalking as Performance Art," and so that kind of had this stealth aspect as well. Um, and and in part of that, I would even like try to take pictures of this this guy from like across the park or like having a friend stand in the way or whatever and so there was definitely kind of a stealth aspect in a different sort of way and then I also did a lot of of paintings that involved reflections where a reflection would kind of reveal um some aspect of a situation that you might not uh have without that kind of second viewpoint and so I think in in both ways um I'm kind of interested in sort of a a sneaky approach to work
0: you talk about your painting how much do you see the your painting and your this this shop dropping type of work
2: how much do they relate to each other it definitely took some kind of mental work to figure that out over the course of um, of trying to articulate what I was doing i i think that the the closest tie i've found is an interest in narrative Uh, a lot of my paintings have always been very narrative based um and they've been kind of depicting some um poetic moment and then uh obviously with with a book there's there's a very obvious narrative but there's also the the narrative of, of finding something and creating an idea of where it came from and I think that's the narrative that interests me most in any of my shop do- dropping work is a, a, a narrative that the audience creates about what they've encountered and what it means and where it comes from and uh that That narrative I feel like is is just as interesting to me as as a painted narrative.
1: What made you choose on the road?
2: Um, you know, I just moved across country. <laughs> And so it felt like I could write about, um, kind of these themes in a way that, uh, that would be fresh, um, (laughs) because I do take a lot from my own experiences when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And also I had read this book a long time ago, actually in high school, and I wasn't very taken with it. I mean, I thought that the writing itself was very nice, but it kind of lacked story. Um. And coming back to it a second time, I felt this less. But when I was choosing it, I just kind of remember this feeling of, of this is nice, but it could use more story. So here was my chance to add more story.
1: <laughs> so when you read it the second time, were you writing the story, the post-it story, as you went along through the book? Or did you reread it and then...
2: No, I, yeah, I reread it entirely before writing the story. I mean, I had some vague ideas of how I wanted the story to work in the sense that I wanted it to also be a road narrative... I wanted it to deal with kind of a sort of coming out of age issue because I feel like that is the story that is always tied up with road trip stories. And um, and I knew I was going to draw from my experience recently driving across country, but that was pretty much all I was bringing to it until I finished the book.
0: How do you pace the post-its through the book? Do you, do you have an idea at the beginning how you want them to be paced or do you just sort of find places that you think it would be good to insert your narrative
2: well as I'm reading I will definitely um like I had a bunch of torn up post-its marking the places where I thought there was a line that was particularly interesting or a scene that I could see um coming back in in my narrative and so um I mark all those spots and then I kind of figure out what paces well as far as where I'm quoting actual lines from the book um and then also um, as I'm writing the story I'll sometimes think oh this actually connects really well to this part and so then um, I kind of have these points that connect and then I'll fill in around those with the with the parts that are more amorphous and try to create some sort of evenness throughout so that it's not a big clump somewhere I'll, Unless that's unless that's the way the story works there are some that I've done where most of the story that I'm inserting is one occurrence um. and and then in that case my um my insertions are much more condensed
0: hmm. why why do you why do you choose to handwrite the in time it's new roman as opposed to your own handwriting or typing out the words or whatever
2: um i i really again i want this to have kind of a feeling of something special and uh, uncommon and precious um when someone encounters it and i think that for me at least, a feeling of of handwork and of time involved uh, adds a lot to that. And so in order to, um, so it's a way of trying to create some sort of precious object as well as a story. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think just printing it would do that and my handwriting would definitely not do that.
1: <laughs> this is just something that occurred to me when I was reading it. Or when I was reading the first one that you sent us, the idea that because you're sort of embedding your work in a book, you have a, a unique perspective as an artist where you sort of know the mindset of the person who's viewing your work. You know, whereas like a painter will put it up and they don't really know what the situation is around their piece with the book like you know the frame of mind at least that there's the person experiencing it is in sort of an inward focused moment and also you know like the exact point in the story at least what you're feeling at that moment so you have a sense i was just trying to think of another type of work or, or media that that has this same aspect and i couldn't really think of it is that something that you ever think about
2: um, well, you know, I actually, I feel like I have very little sense of how someone encounters my work because I am writing it having read the book. Um, and so mm. I never, I'm never coming to both stories at the same time. I'm I'm always, uh, I'm always doing one and then the other. And so um, the idea of someone coming to both is actually kind of mystifying for me. Mm. And my sister for a Christmas present made me Um, kind of her own little version of this um, where she added a few post-it notes to a book that she gave me for Christmas and it was great and not only because I enjoyed the experience but it actually just gave me a much better sense of how it works to encounter something else while you're reading a story and and how um, how it can kind of pull you through and bring you out of the initial narrative at the same time.
1: Yeah that was that's one thing we were going to talk about later which was that when I was reading it you when I would get to the post-it notes I, the switch allowed me to sort of focus more on both aspects of both storylines sort of and I we were wondering we were talking about whether that has to do with how everyone's multitaskers <laughs> now and like we're good at switching back in fact well, maybe we're more comfortable in that in that way but for me, I liked the overlay and it, yeah, it made me focus more than like 50 pages of straight on the road.
0: I mean, is that something that you're, you're trying to comment on or is it just sort of a natural way for you to work because, you know, multitasking is such a part of, you know, our everyday environment?
2: Um, I initially came up with the idea for doing this actually as just a story idea I was thinking about. I, I went through a period where I was really interested in reading over other people's shoulders on the subway. <laughs> like this was just something I tried to do. This is something I tried to notice when other people were doing. Uh, it was really fun, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I started to think about what kind of story you could you could write based on, um, to someone reading someone else's book over their shoulder on the subway. And so in this in this idea, um, I was. I was punctuating the two people's interaction with the book itself. And um, and so I was thinking of writing this story with all these chunks of another book in it. And I started to think it would make more sense just to put this in a book mm. that already exists and have this secondary story kind of grow out of that. And so um, for me, the the back and forth is because I'm really interested in how people interact with books. Mm. And so each story kind of explores a character interacting with a book and um and i feel like maybe this kind of multitasking is almost like a kind of book club in a way of like the the reader and the this the uh, symbiotic story and the primary story Mm -hmm. where where each each kind of has its own input
1: some of the switches are sort of jarring (laughs) you know, the character in the in the post-it note is in a completely different time and space than than the characters in the book.
2: Well, yeah, there are times when I'm playing with that where I'll... There were times uh, there's there's a big stretch of on the road where they're watching jazz musicians. This is the most boring part for me. <laughs> like, I just... So I was like, I've got to put a post-it note in there because I need that as a reader to get me through. Yeah. You know, so there are some where I'm... I'm kind of right. commenting on what I need um, mm. at this point in the story. Like, I need something different. Right. I need, you know, or this is heavy, I need something lighter, or, you know. Mm. Um, so so there's some that are responding in that way. And then there are some that are just where the arc of my story happens to hit the arc of this mm. story, you right. know.
1: Mm. but That sort of goes back to the multitasking thing where it's like now... There's a boring section, so let's switch to something that will keep me, you know, keep you going.
2: No, I think you're right. That's very much there. I I wasn't really thinking about it in those terms. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just because... Well, you know, another thing I've always been interested in in books is, like, layers of narrative. Like, House of Leaves is a great one Mm -hmm. for that, where you have, like, three different layers of unreliable narrator. And I just think that's so much fun. And so... I think I actually was coming to it from uh, a standpoint of reading people who were already kind of dealing with those multitasking issues mm-hmm. um, so I wasn't even thinking of them necessarily as a comment on our on our times but more right. as a cool thing that writers get to do yeah. <laughs> you know
1: right. yeah that was, so that was another thing Was like on the back of this book it says the book that defined a generation <laughs> And so, like, I would see that every, you know, before I started reading it. And it just kept making me think about how, you know, viewing this work as sort of something that could only happen now or something that did happen now. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that sort of brought up this whole, like, multitasking issue.
2: No, I think you're right that it's very pertinent to multitasking. I think the other thing about now that is specific to this work is just that There is so much kind of like talk about print being in danger and libraries being in danger. You know, there's the group Improv Everywhere that does um, these kind of things like choreographed dance routines that they'll suddenly do in public places and that kind of thing. Um, And the the New York Public Library had them come in and specifically asked them to do one to promote the library. Mm. You know? So I'm not the only one feeling like... It's good to have art bringing people into books, and I think that that's kind of something that's very specific to our times is this feeling that uh that that books can uh, use some multidisciplinary help <laughs> yeah i mean i I also think that the the story that you
0: wrote is also very indicative of our generation you know i mean the the doldrums of office work and the anxiety of not knowing what you want to do and sort of like the all of our 20s you know like the urge to go and do and be something different than what you are i don't know
2: i i agree i was very much thinking about the people that i know of my specific generation and where they are in their lives right now and where i am and and how everyone is kind of approaching this feeling of of trying to create some kind of roadmap of their life and I do see a lot of people kind of postponing their choices in life and, you know, wavering back and forth on their ideas of what's useful. And But at the same time, I was, right before writing this, I was reading a self-help book from the 70s and it was discussing these same issues. And so, I mean, obviously they played out differently then, but I feel like at the same time as it feels very now to have... You no know, characters in their 20s Not knowing what they're doing with their lives Not wanting to put themselves in boxes Etc It's also um, been noticed for quite some time As a, as a just general um, Phase of, of life
1: But it's weird in contrast To like Sal and Dean Who clearly have no plan And don't care at all About it yeah. That's what they're after even Like there's no anxiety About not having a plan
2: well, and I feel like Sal and Dean kind of contribute to our contemporary relationship with plans in that, at least for myself, I grew up with this, this sense of like, of this being something to aspire to this planless, restless, um, you know, life of adventure. And, and I feel like that kind of adds to a lot of the um, kind of confusion that people then face Right is, is sort of you know, having their generation defined this way. I definitely sort of, like, envisioned when I was in high school or college, like, spending time doing this kind of, you know, wandering around the country aimlessly with no money. And then, you know, I ended up having a long-term boyfriend. And that just didn't happen. And, like, you know, so I feel like there are all these conflicting forces of this kind of Kerouac ideal. And then... uh how life actually, you know, unfolds, right. Right. And then you read the Kerouac out ideal, and you're like, wow, he's kind of just trying to get drunk and have sex with the ladies a lot, like, yeah. and he just you can kind of do that nice. any place, <laughs> like, yeah.
1: And they're sort of jerks to yeah. everybody, like, yeah. I mean, he leaves them in Mexico when he's like <laughs> on the verge of death. <laughs> so he's just like, I'm out of here.
2: Yeah. Oh, and the way they treat their women. Yeah. <laughs>
1: just one point another point of c- contrast between the characters and sort of now or the story was that was the episode where where like her moment of spontaneity is taking the photo with those with the biker chicks compared to the amount of spontaneity in the book is sort of timid but it it's also sort of more it seemed more realistic to how it is today and also and the idea that like the pleasure that she was getting out of that partially was like an ironic pleasure and irony is the complete (laughs) opposite of what there's no irony at all in their world. Like they're, they're seeking complete authenticity. It seems like, and just that contrast. Yeah. I mean, that's
2: true. And like, I think part of that is just that the things that they're doing that are transgressive, uh, are not so transgressive any longer. You know, they're they're getting they're getting drunk and chasing girls like, and and at the time that was much more revolutionary. Now, talking to strangers is more. I feel like out of the norm.
1: They feel completely comfortable doing that. I mean,
2: talking to strangers. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's. I mean, that's her big moments. The main character of my story's big moments of kind of of crisis and of you know interest are, are not picking up a hitchhiker, taking this picture with these women and having her like moment of attempting to have divine intervention <laughs> spoiled by tourists, right. you know, and they are all really brief and really, um, uh, uncomfortable kind of. And I, I mean, yeah, I think that just has, has to do with how I feel people generally are about other people. <laughs>
0: I liked how at the end of the book, there's this funny symmetry when Sal says goodbye to Dean and he doesn't know if he'll ever see him again. To me, it symbolized the loss of youth and and his choice and realization that it was time for adulthood, sort of. And in your post-it story, your character sort of accepts this looming 30 age (laughs) and... (laughs) And sort of resigns to this future that's both predictable and debt filled, but she she also recognizes that it it's the making of choices that's the gro- growing up.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something I struggle with a lot is making choices, and um, and the choice that she makes is not a choice I would ever make <laughs> because um, of all the reasons that I outline, and I feel like. What makes her kind of more admirable is that she's willing to do it anyway, you know, and, and I feel like um, just in general, it's so much more important to just do things um, than to, uh, to think about them excessively. And, um, and so, yeah, I was kind of, and, and I know I had a friend proofread and they read the end is very morose. Um, And I actually didn't mean it to be quite so cynical like I just meant it to be that that even having um, having a life that in many ways disappoints you can be a heroic act and Mm. and also at the same time fulfilling. I I don't know if that makes any sense but I I saw it as like uh, a good thing to do (laughs) just making choices and making the best of them you know. Yeah, do you, do you do you you don't ever mention a name? Did you name her? No, I didn't. No, um, I you know, uh, I didn't feel like it was necessary, and and especially because with the like inserting it into other books, um, I like it. I, I like it to be as ambiguous as possible, and this is the first time I've written one uh, in first person, mm. and so not. Uh, You know, I I wanted to keep that kind of um, with all the sort of ambiguities that first person indicates in a situation like this, where the essential question is kind of, who put this here, you know? And if you have a name, it's different than if you don't. On
0: your website and on our website, when we put it up, we're not going to be able to put, we're not going to be able to scan the whole book, you know? We can scan the pages that you work on, but you know do you do you see that as not really representative of the work because you because they're inherently tied to each other?
2: yeah, no, I mean, I think that I do it because it's the best I can do, but it's you know it's like having documentation of a performance piece, basically
1: yeah, I mean it's going to be a little bit different too the The fact that these people didn't go to the library yeah. and check out this book definitely. Although th- it's still a book that you're, surprised. they still don't
2: know it's what they're getting, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think <laughs> like,
0: oh, I God. think it's a surprise still, and I think it's still it's sort of nice that it's coming directly to their home. It's being presented as art, which maybe
2: changes their view of it. But I think that makes it more interesting. Then it's it's less that um, that like oh, I'm checking out this library book, and there's this weird secondary edition but more like i'm expecting art and i get a book a from book. penguin or whatever <laughs> yes. you know and like <laughs> it opposite. doesn't look like an artist's book <laughs> yeah. you know so yeah it's kind of this yeah sort of reverse yeah. of uh of art in unexpected places <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's a book it's yeah places.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder, I wonder how many of your books survive, you know, how many of your post-its don't get taken out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know that if I found one, I'd be very tempted to just keep the post-its, <laughs> you know, um, but at the same time, I would feel like I should pass this on, and let someone else have this experience. But I, I would be conflicted between mm-hmm. wanting, you know, the object and, and wanting others to have the experience.
0: But then I wonder, you know, if there's, you know, librarians out there that are like, hey, get this <laughs> out of here!
2: <laughs> I definitely always, like, in in my shop dropping or even in, in this, with, which is a little um, less invasive than some of the other work, I, I feel weird when I'm re- in the moment of return. Like, I, um, I'm i scared they're going to flip it open and be like, what's this? And start removing them. And, you know, I'm going to just see everything crumble. But, um I, you know, I I I haven't seen them take much care with that kind of thing at the library. So you've never gotten um, caught? In oh no, setting? they never open the books at the library. What about with the other stuff? Um, I got caught once, and I just walked away, left <laughs> 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 my artwork work sitting, walked out. What are you, what are you, can you can you tell us the situation? <laughs> Well, that kind of destroys my whole attempt to keep it general okay. cuz okay. the story requires some specificity okay. of brand names, etc. Okay. But um but yeah, I mean, for me, uh in an artwork like this, the fun part is creating something um secret and special um and imagining how um how other people will find that Uh, And the worst absolute part is trying to put it back into the world um, when when other people might not be fond of it.
0: Speaking of being fond or not fond (laughs) of things, we tend to end our interviews with a doozy of a question. (laughs) But we just like to get people's answers on what is value of art.
2: I feel like my answer to that changes a lot depending on my mood. You know, there are some days when I'll say that it's the highest calling that a person can pursue, and there are other days when I will say that um, it has absolutely no value aside from, um, you know, self-stimulation. But in general, the the value of art is, is what you bring to it, Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for talking with us and working with <laughs> us. Yeah, Thank thanks. you.